Two of the top commentators in compliance get together. They talk compliance, of course. This is Tom Fox, and I'd like to welcome you to the newest addition to the Compliance Podcast Network, Two Gurus Talk Compliance, where I'm joined by my friend and colleague, Christy Grant Hart, as we talk compliance and review some of the other top commentators in compliance as well. We will consider all things compliance, corporate ethics, ESG governance, and whatever else is on our minds or on the minds of other experts in our field. In this episode, we take up a variety of topics, including new focus on cybersecurity, how Taylor Swift informs your compliance program, what's on the mind of CCOs, Rachel Carson, leadership, what is a corrupt payment, using AI to generate show notes, and VAT from the Caremark perspective. I know you'll enjoy this episode. Two Gurus Talk Compliance is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hi, and welcome to the Two Gurus Talk Compliance podcast with me, Christy Granthart. I'm here with the one and only Tom Fox. This week, we're covering the potential crisis with performing due diligence in China, enforcement actions from the SEC on ephemeral messaging, all the highlights from the National Compliance Week conference, and the fascinating fraud case involving the use of real sheriff deputies' names, fake warrants, and missed jury duty. You don't want to miss that. But first, Tom, how has your week been, and what do you think is the most interesting development? Well, my week was great, Christy, because I got to go to Compliance Week 2023, Monday through Wednesday in Washington, D.C. It was great to see everyone. I'm going to talk a little bit more about the conference a little bit later in the uh, in the episode, but uh, that was great, and everything really went as well as it could have. Helen Hunt and I co-hosted a dinner that was just lovely, wonderful, and great food with great friends, so... Uh, Still kind of on a high from Compliance Week 2023. I love that. So what do you want to talk about first? Let's talk about Phillips. Okay, let's start talking about Phillips. Fantastic. Well, this article comes from the FCPA blog, which basically just talked about the next inductee in the much reviled FCPA recidivist club. So this entry is relating to, of course, the Netherlands-based medical device company Phillips. Originally, they'd settled with the SEC for $62 million, again, including a civil penalty of $15 million and $47 million in disgorgement and pre-judgment interest. So recidivists, of course, mean they did this again. So according to the SEC, between 2014 and 2019, the company's subsidiary in China used special pricing discounts uh, with distributors, and that created the risk of improper payments to the Chinese government officials. So Employees also engaged in improper conduct, such as influencing hospital officials to draft technical specifications in public tenders to favor Philips products. And a sales manager in China delivered $14,500 to the home of a director of the hospital's radiology department in return for helping win sales worth $4.6 million, which really, that's a pretty good number, although it's an illegal one, you know. This all unfortunately smacks of Phillips' first FCPA drama where they paid the SEC $4.5 million, obviously significantly less, to resolve charges that employee subsidiaries in Poland made improper payments to government officials overseeing the Polish healthcare facilities to skew public tenders in favor of Phillips' products. So reportedly, the DOG was circling this one as well, or the DOJ, sorry. But in a May 13 company statement, Phillips said the DOJ had, quote, closed its parallel inquiry 
unquote. So Tom, I want to hear all your thoughts on this, but let's start with this distributor relationship. So more times than I can count, we've heard business people and even compliance colleagues who say they're not worried about the distributor because the distributor has all the risk of bad behavior. They've transferred that risk. It kind of makes me nuts. What would you say to those folks? So I would say I thought the same thing in 2004. And I wrote an opinion to the Halliburton Legal Department. Then when you have transfer of title and risk of loss, you don't keep legal liability. Turns out I was 100% wrong along with mm. everyone else. Yeah. And the DOJ made clear that you are 100% responsible for your distributors 100% of the time. And so I think it's really a legacy of, as lawyers, we see distributors as different legal risks because they are. But- they are the exactly the same as a commissioned sales agent. So that's sort of point number one. And one of the things I tried to emphasize about this case is people need to, I think, wake up that distributors may, I haven't decided if they're as big a risk as commissioned sales agents, but they're a different risk and you've got to manage those risks. And the Phillips case drove home for me that message that we need to manage the distributor risk and it has to be done. Number one. Number two, recidivist. Recidivist, recidivist, recidivist. No self-disclosure. Uh, now, they did cooperate, but I didn't see anything which would tell me it was the super-duper extra double-secret probation cooperation that Kenneth Polite outlined in his speech announcing changes to the corporate enforcement policy. So how did they get the result they did? I was very, the SEC just didn't give us a lot of information on that. Number three, First of all, why is the company announcing the DOJ's, what the DOJ does or right? doesn't do? I thought that was interesting too. But as we all know, and you have said, and I have said, when the Monaco doctrine was announced, recidivists would pay. Well, it turns out they don't pay. <laughs> and uh, the department walked that back with the corporate enforcement policy changes that Kenneth Belita announced that I referenced. But it's a complete head scratcher if the DOJ simply drop their investigation because you can have a declination with disgorgement or you can have a just a plain old declination. But to have a plain old declination, you have to have no evidence of criminal conduct. It's like to me, there's pretty clear evidence that would sustain an FCPA violation as brought by the Department of Justice. So I'm very perplexed by the announcement. I have to believe that if Phillips said that, they believed it. But once again, we've heard nothing from the Department of Justice. I would like to find out why the DOJ, if they did give a declination, why they got a declination, and what on earth uh, is self the requirement for self-disclosure and or don't violate the FCPA again one year after you sign your first deferred prosecution agreement. So the last two categories are really open questions. And whether or not you subscribe to conspiracy comms theories or not, the first point is distributors present a high risk and you need to manage that risk. And the, or not Oracle, I'm sorry, Oracle, uh, Microsoft cases from late last year and early this year, together with the Phillips case, I think form a very good triumph triumvirate of the types of strategies of bribery and corruption under distributors and what you need to do to manage those. Yeah. Such good points that you have. I mean, that ending piece about the DOJ is so weird. The only thing I can imagine is that they're trying to say that there's an offset because the SEC had its penalty, but it's that is weird stuff right there. Do you think that there's a possibility that the DOJ will say, excuse me, I wasn't done yet? Do you think that that's 
possible? I suppose it's possible. We have in the past had some very minimal missteps in the PR field around FCPA, but the only times I can think of is where essentially a company tries to negotiate in public where they say something like, we have offered 8 million, the DOJ is at 12 million, we think we'll settle at 10 million. Well, you're going to settle at 12 million. Uh, <laughs> but I, I can never think of a case where a company publicly announced the DOJ had closed its investigation. It turned out not to be true, but I am completely perplexed by the DOJ's uh, position on this matter. Interesting. All right. What do you want to talk about next? So I want to talk about a stakeholder strategy, and this comes to us from a Harvard Business Review article. And Christy, the reason this intrigued me is in 2018, the Business Roundtable issued the statement on the purpose of a corporation moving away from a one-shareholder model to five different stakeholders. And this was one of the few articles I've seen that talked about how you would create a strategy for stakeholders. Part of the, the beauty, I think, of Business Roundtable statement is that it expands out the groups that companies need to consider. That includes shareholders, employees, third parties, customers, and the localities where they do business. Obviously, that makes things a little more complex, but the article laid out some strategies they suggest you put in place. It includes, they call it, make sense of outside perspectives. You and I would call that a risk assessment. Two, create your own stakeholder strategy. You and I would say, build your risk assessment out based upon, build out your risk management strategy based upon your risk assessment. And then number three is, to create a system to sustain your stakeholder strategy, you and I would say that is monitoring and continuous improvement. So the things that we do in compliance, I think easily translate to a stakeholder strategy, but the more you look at other groups and in terms stakeholders, I think it makes you a more robust company and you're going to do business more compliantly and more ethically because you're considering other groups in your decision-making calculus. So that's why that article intrigued me. And that's why I wanted to talk about stakeholders instead of shareholders. I think it was really interesting. So it was, I think, the longest one that we looked at other than the one that I'll get to on hot desking. But I think gave a lot of really good examples of places to get information, which I always love. I like it when there's very strong specificity in how to do the review. And also, I thought one of the most interesting things that that article had, and it was a statistic from July 2019. So they surveyed over a thousand adults and Fortune magazine found that two thirds of those U.S. adults now think a company's primary objective should be making the world a better place. Right. Sounds very Silicon Valley. Do you think that company leadership have that sensibility or boards have that sensibility that people are that in tuned to the expectation that companies make worlds a better place? I think. There's a new generation of employees who are demanding that of their employers. I think customers are considering those factors in a purchase. So I will talk about Starbucks. I have loved Starbucks from the very first day I found a Starbucks. Starbucks is anti-union. Mm -hmm. uh, I have to say that factors into my decision now as to whether to go to my local Starbucks. They're virulently anti-union. I believe that men and women have the right to self-organize for their own economic purposes. And it's been enshrined in U.S. law since the Wagner Act of 1936. So uh, those factors, which may not be strictly cost, are factors that customers, and I'm just one example of, of many, localities where companies do business. 
it's not that you want to be a good neighbor just to be a good neighbor. It's actually lowers your liability risk. So there are some real business reasons to take all of these into account. And so I think corporate executives and boards are looking at this more, more holistically. I love that. Okay. So I want to move to something that I find absolutely terrifying and really, really curious on your opinion on this. Cause they're, they're even in the article, they're wildly divergent about whether this is actually a problem or not. So this one comes from the our friends at the Wall Street Journal, and it's entitled U.S. Companies in China Worry Due Diligence Will End in Spy Drama. How good is that title, right? <laughs> Even by itself, spy dramas. So, but while the article of the sounds sort of popcorn worthy, the details are scary for anyone in the compliance industry tasked with due diligence in China, especially if they're asked to visit, which right now my answer would be absolutely not. So the article details the frightening actions taken recently by the Chinese authorities who questioned staff at Bain & Co's Shanghai office. And last month, China detained all five members of the Shanghai office of the due diligence firm Mintz. The company, that company, by the way, is New York based. And a third company called CapVision was also recently visited by the police. And that firm matches experts with information gathering individuals and they're paid for their access. So as you, I'm sure, are aware, China has recently expanded its anti-espionage law, which tightens the state control over a wider swath of data and digital activities. Um, and the Wall Street Journal article goes into depth about the problems that these arrests and the focus on due diligence creates for compliance officers, because we're being asked all the time for greater and deeper due diligence by virtue of the sanctions, the ever-evolving sanctions, and the focus on especially beneficial ownership and expansion of ESG, modern slavery, right? We, gosh, we have laws on that and the privacy-related due diligence. So it makes it really hard. And it finishes talking about the Xinjiang anti-slavery laws and warns about the loose and moving definition of what constitutes a state secret within China. Tom, this is exceedingly complicated. Do you think that compliance officers themselves should be worried? And if you're performing an investigation there, is this a problem? So first of all, it's not complicated. It's very simple. Okay. China will arrest you if you go to China and perform due diligence. In addition to Bain, there was the arrest and detention of the entire men's group in China in March, I believe. Yep. So rarely do you see Tom, Fox, and conspiracy Tom in the same room. <laughs> Today, you're going to see that because this is not a conspiracy yeah. This is not a spy thing. This is real. Yeah. These people and men, the men's group, their entire office was arrested. And that's just worst of it because numerous companies have been raided, have been investigated, and the Chinese have made clear, have made clear to me, and I think it's been made clear in the reporting, and this article is a great example of that. You are absolutely putting your physical safety at risk if you go to China and perform due diligence. Now, for you white eyes out there, you're double at risk because you're going to stand out. You may have Chinese employees. You may have others that may be able to pass a little bit better in China, but I think they're at risk. But you're absolutely right. I am not going to China. And I think it's very troubling. And I think we're going to, and we, you know, you touched on it, rightly so, the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act uh, is a big thorn in the side of China, and it's a mm -hmm. bigger thorn in the side of American importers because they have to prove they don't have goods from Xinjiang that are made with forced labor. So this is a huge problem. It's a huge escalation in the tensions between our countries. I've written about this. I've podcasted about this. 
And this is real. This is not a conspiracy. This is not a spy thing. Um, GSK, GlaxoSmithKline, in 2013 and 2014 came to big grief over this. And the investigator they hired to find out who put a camera in their business unit's president of their business unit's bedroom to film he and his girlfriend in Delectio, that person spent time in prison. And so that's the kind of situation you could find yourself in if you try to do investigations. And as to the moving line, it's always moving. You never know if you've stepped across that line. And that's part of the problem when you work in a place where the law, rule of law does not apply. And I should say, it's not probably not fair. The Communist Party rule of law applies, but that's a very moving line. So this is real. And if your company instructs you to go to China, I think you have an absolute right to say no. And if you get invited to go by Chinese authorities, you can very politely say no. But my suggestion is you give a very firm no. Yeah. I was surprised at the end of the article that they had a couple of experts saying, oh, it's not a big deal. And I thought, well, I'm taking a risk-based approach and I'm not going. So glad I saw the, <laughs> glad I saw the wall several years ago with a, with, when I went for a different reason. But no, I'm not going now for sure. Yeah, I wanted to cite an article on the Harvard Law School Forum on Corporate Governance, which is just, if not the best, one of the top two or three blog posts on corporate governance and a wide variety of articles by some of the top people, literally Artie Lippman, if you've been in M&A in the last 50 years, you know who he is, and he still posts on there. But it's entitled Board Governance Strategy in a Changing Global Economic Landscape, and it's going to sound a whole lot like what you and I do. Because their prognosis is consult the experts, i.e. risk assessment, plan around multiple scenarios, i.e. risk management strategy based upon your risk assessment, and then resiliency, that's monitoring and ongoing improvement. So it is, I think, however, important for the board to understand it can engage in that same process. So I've cited to the article, and the more we can get boards thinking about these bigger pictures, as with the stakeholder situation, and even things like ESG, I think boards will become more robust and companies will become more profitable. So I thought what was interesting about this specifically was it's written by Deloitte and they were looking at the cost cutting in, in response to inflationary pressures and whether there's recessionary indicators and saying, you know, it may not be the best choice. We may want to continue to invest in individuals and humans, and we might want to be buying assets at a low price. And especially with ESG, charitable community involvement, that's being seen as kind of a fair weather actor is actually really bad and negative. Kind of going back to what we were talking about first, do you think that that is something, do you agree with that point of view? And do you think that people are conscious of it? Uh, I absolutely agree with that point of view as to the consciousness I think there's probably not enough consciousness about it. I talk to a lot of folks in the HR world, and they almost universally say in five years, the differentiator between corporations will be talent acquisition and retention. And it's because the skill level of what is required goes up. Just as in our profession, we have multiple disciplines outside legal and even compliance, such as behavioral analytics, organizational development, obviously data analytics and data scientists. The same is true in the business world. And the article notes that economic data is reigning. That's R-A-I-N-I-N-G. And that really speaks to everyone is going to have to have quantitative ability, not simply to put numbers in a spreadsheet and add them up, but analyze them. And so 
investing employees in, in employees now, I think will pay huge benefits uh, when things turn back around because you'll have a cadre of committed, hopefully loyal employees, but more importantly, you'll have the right set of employees that you can build upon. Love that. Well, can we talk about the possibility of a new regulator? Because I love kind of- it. Love <laughs> it. Let's talk about the new new regulators. I love it. So this one comes from Inc. Magazine, actually, and they are looking at Open AI's CEO Sam Altman's testimony before the Senate Judiciary Committee recently. So he had been called to discuss the promise and the perils of artificial intelligence that his company had created. And it's not often that you hear a Silicon Valley founder imploring legislators for more regulation, but that's what happened here. So he repeatedly advocated for more and more government regulation, including the creation of an agency responsible for licensing and setting safety standards for large AI models. And during the hearing, there was testimony demanding regulation from others, including a call for mandatory outside auditing of AI systems by independent experts. At the hearing, one of the serial entrepreneurs who is also a professor of psychology and neuroscientist at NYU had a great quote. He said, quote, we have built machines that are like bulls in China shops, powerful, reckless, and difficult to control. Current systems are not transparent. They do not adequately pr protect our privacy. They continue to, to perpetuate bias, and even their makers don't entirely understand how they work, unquote. And I love this in the article, in a surprising moment of candor, Dick Durbin, who is a senator from Illinois, stated that, quote, I am not sure that we respond quickly and with enough expertise to deal with it, unquote. Really? The Congress doesn't have comprehension of AI in order to create regulation for it? Shocking. Uh, so, Tom, is this the rise of the machine? Do you think we will get AI regulation and regulators? And if so, will it already be too late? Well, let me just first say that for all those creators out there who created children, guess what? <laughs> you don't get to control them uh, to the extent you want to want to sometimes. So even when you're the creator, uh, if you're Jackson Roy Clark from Star Trek TOS, sometimes the creator doesn't do what you want. I was intrigued, obviously, to see him so forcefully advocate for outside regulation, and appropriately so. I know Matt Kelly and I have talked about many of these issues on compliance into the weeds. Here's the thing that strikes me, and it struck me about five years ago, Christy, the first time Mark Zuckerberg testified. We have 80 and 90-year-old senators. Yep. May or may not know what email is. And they're talking to tech wizards who know a lot more than them. And one, it's painful to watch mm. them try to question these people. Two, they don't understand. And three, this is a presidential race is about to unfold. Isn't there someone younger than 80 that can run this country? So I know that's a little bit off script, but I just, I get so depressed when I see these hearings and I don't think that the senators understand the questions they're asking or their answers they're getting. I'm sure they have competent staff behind them, or I would at least hope so. But these tech hearings just depress me for that reason. But we're going to get some regulation. I hope we get it sooner than later. Hopefully, we'll just get some broad parameters and then some regulatory body, whatever it is, the FTC, SEC, whoever regulates this, or a new agency will then fill in some of the specific regs if the Supreme Court allows agencies to do that going forward. I was so going to say, if they even allow it. Yep, absolutely, 100%. So, you know, the next ruling is going to be if the agency didn't exist when the Constitution was created, it's unconstitutional. 
originalism. Come on. Sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> uh, so our next or uh, my next article was about the messaging crackdown. And this is something Matt and I talked about. Um, the Department of Justice made clear in the 2023 evaluation of corporate compliance programs, which was released in January, that they expect messaging companies to deal with messaging compliance reforms. And in September of last year, we had $2 billion in fines and penalties levied by the Securities and Exchange Commission uh, against some regulated industries. I would anticipate that we will see additional fines, um, upwards of a billion for multiple companies in the regulated space going forward. But I'm going to take this opportunity to talk a little bit about Compliance Week. And I heard uh, there were two things that I heard, heard and saw about messaging. The first one was a DOJ representative, and she, I thought, was a breath of fresh air. And she said, what we want to see is a manage a risk management strategy in place. He said, we don't necessarily want to see, uh, we, we're not demanding that you have completely stopped ephemeral messaging. What we expect to see is a strategy. And then there was a presentation by a technology company uh, and the CEO presented, uh, they have a tool that does that. But he, yeah, and I, I thought I knew everything about tools that <laughs> did ephemeral messaging. And, but he said it's people, processes, and performance. And so what that means is you educate the people, you put written policies and procedures in place to manage the risk, and then you monitor that and that's where his tool comes in on the monitoring part. And when I started thinking along those lines, I went, you know, I'm pretty familiar with that process. <laughs> and now there's a tool out there that can give us that monitoring, which I wasn't aware of before. Because the only solution I had ever come up with in this space was, well, you just buy everybody company-issued phone. Well, if you have 10,000 employees, that gets to be a pretty expensive proposition. And so really the message I got from Compliance Week is, this is not chicken little. This is another compliance issue. And if you use the strategies that you use for any other compliance issue, you can manage that issue to the satisfaction of the Department of Justice. The $2 billion in fines that the SEC levied against financial institutions in September, every one of those financial institutions had appropriate policies and procedures in place. They didn't monitor those and they didn't manage those and they didn't train their employees enough to use them appropriately. So I came out of Compliance Week with actually much more hope on this issue than I had had. The solution is just how you would handle a compliance issue in terms of assess your risk, manage your risk, monitor your risk, and improve your your strategy. And now there's a tool in place that does that. So uh, I was pretty upbeat on this issue much more than I went in. And whatever compliance we cost, it was worth it just for those two pieces of information. That's fascinating. I mean, what struck me about Matt Kelly's writing, which I found particularly entertaining in this article, was that he put his phone number at the end to call him if he wanted to talk about ephemeral messaging. That just made me smile. But I think that the fact that the leaders at the company were not only engaging in the ephemeral messaging, but according to the policy, they were tasked with managing and making sure their subordinates didn't use ephemeral messaging. That's a that's a pretty big tone from the top issue that I'm I'm certain weighed in with the regulators as they made their fines. So why do employees hate hot desks? 
why would they not hate pot desking? So this is from the Wall Street Journal. And I just found myself just wanting to, you know, sing amen, basically, at every line about this. So this was a very long article, and rightly so, because there is just so much to say about why hot desking is awful, especially if you're in a profession like compliance, where privacy and confidentiality are they're key. You have to have them. So there are apparently researchers who research why people hate hot desking. So people hate the hunting for the workspace every time they're in the office, and the fact that they work longer because they don't start working when they're looking for a hot desk. They can't find stations for their needs. There's not spaces to personalize. They can't be near their colleagues. They can't collaborate, which is the whole point, theoretically. And I thought it was hilarious. They had examples of people who basically try to make sure they're getting their space. So they leave items on desks like photos, stickers, bags. Somebody even, according to one of the researchers, left crumbs from their lunch overnight to try to make it look like someone was at the desk the next day. Um, and I love this. Managers tend to talk the talk and say that we love the hot desks. And then they basically roost in a room and make it so that that room is never available. And as you might imagine, this leads to resentment very quickly. So the, the article suggesting two words I've never heard before, one of which is neighboring. So there are functions near each other without assigned seats, but at least you're near your folks. And the other one is hoteling, which apparently means that they have a large variety of spaces like the desks, the private cubicles, the open cafes and meeting rooms that can be booked out. Wall Street Journal noted that a lot of people quit jobs requiring hot desking out of frustration, means, meaning that the recruitment and replacement costs basically undo all of the savings that hot desking is trying to create for the company. So I know you and I have an absolute hate relationship with anything other than working from home, which is part of why we do that all the time and own our companies. But I think the biggest thing about hot desking, when you put compliance officers in a hot desking situation, it's bonkers. It's just bonkers because you can't take those private phone calls. You can't take the reports. You can't do the work of investigations when somebody can listen to you. Like, do you think that companies are paying any attention to that? And how does a compliance officer respond when they're asked a hot desk? So uh, I found this whole article, this whole situation hilarious <laughs> because it speaks to, or at least it spoke to me about the inane inefficiency of having a return to work policy with no strategy. There are very legitimate reasons to bring people back into the office. Bringing them back into the office to have a Zoom call with six people who are not in the office is not right. one of them. Right. Um, yeah. I, you know, we both know all the players in our space in terms of the product and service providers, or certainly the product providers. And if I go visit, you name the company, they, you know, they have a bullpen and they have desks and everyone sit, or at least pre-pandemic, everyone was sitting at the desks. And it wasn't that it, it was too noisy to work because I felt like I could tune out and work, but you didn't lean over to your neighbor and have a conversation because that would interrupt everybody around you. Now you could go to a quiet room and, and, you know, maybe have a conversation that way. Um, but the efficiency of that was actually lowered. So the whole purpose of informal collaboration, I think is, was a myth and is a myth and companies, I think bringing people back to work is just largely about control because they don't trust their employees. I will suggest that Spark Consulting has a different attitude on these matters. <laughs> Maybe you screen inherently well in the pre-employment process. I don't know. Nevertheless, 
you know, when I read this, I'm like, of course, this is, they don't want to do this because inherent inefficiencies, if you have a strategy where, or the other strategy is, you know, half the team comes in Monday, Tuesday, the other half comes in Thursday, Friday. Well, how much collaboration is that going to bring except on the Zoom call? So companies want people back in the office. Maybe that's legitimate. Maybe it's not, but there's no thought around it. There's no strategy behind it. The strategies we all you and I have employed for years, other people had to utilize during the work from home era and they work. And I just can't understand why corporate America has its collected head up its wazoozie around this issue. I actually spark compliance as a motto. I think we stole it from Netflix that we hire adults. And if you're not an adult and I have to micromanage you, you don't belong here because I hire adults who can manage their own lives. You know, that's a rule around here. All right. So I have one more thing I, I have to talk about. As you know, I try to find something ridiculous basically every week because it's too much fun not to. And this is what I found. The Travis County cautions about ongoing jury duty fraud calls. This is in your great home state of Texas, obviously. But I was really amused by these fraudsters because they are they got a good thing going, man. So the Travis County Sheriff's Office is warning residents of an ongoing spate of fraudulent callers posing as county officials seeking payments for missed du- uh, jury duty appearances. So some of these people are very clever. They go and find on LinkedIn the names of actual employees. So if someone Googles them, they'll find the name. And residents will get a call saying that there is a warrant out for their arrest for missing jury duty. Frequently, they are emailed signed notice warrants with case numbers that appear to be legitimate. I mean, honestly, this would start to get to me, I think. They require immediate payment over the phone or via wire transfer and use spoof numbers if they're calling from outside the United States. The sheriff reminded residents that while they can, in fact, be fined up to $1,000 for skipping jury duty, no one will ever call them from the office to demand payment over the phone or wire transfer. I thought this one was quite clever, Tom. What do you think? So actually it's, it's number two behind my favorite, which was, I get a call that the IRS is about to arrest me. They're on their way. Nice. I need to immediately wire X amount of dollars for some outstanding IRS bill. I hope you remember Michael Clayton, the movie. Yep. Uh, and in that movie, um, he has one of the great lines of all time. A client has been involved in a hit and run auto accident. They send Michael Clayton, the fixer there to get him a lawyer and get him calmed down. The phone rings and the and the client just jumps. Is that the police? Is that the police? And he said, they don't call. They come by. <laughs> if you're going to get arrested, right. they don't call. They come by. If you get a letter, uh, they don't send letters. The IRS will send you a letter, but they don't send you a letter saying we're going to arrest you. They come by and arrest you. So <laughs> if you get one of those calls, now I recognize not everyone is either an Oscar-winning movie aficionado like you and I are, or perhaps <laughs> legally trained like you and I are. But uh, don't worry. Uh, I've never known anyone to be fined. Uh, that is, there is a sanction, a civil sanction in the state of Texas for ditching jury duty or not showing up. Uh, but in every major county, there's plenty more where that list, your name came from. And so they just move to the next one. And I've been in lots of jury pools. I've never been selected, but obviously... But yeah, don't worry about it. Pretty creative though. They, they had a couple of people allegedly ask for gift cards, which I feel like they, they, they're not going to give. Can I please have an Amazon gift card of $500 to pay off your warrant? Is Now you're into bribe territory. It's just bad. 
So Tom, why don't you finish off our podcast today with our good friend, Michael Volkov, and what he has to say about the confluence of prosecution and foreign policy. Right. So Mike writes about a, a broad remit of topics. Sanctions is part of that remit. And so I always enjoy that, one, because he's much more of an expert at it, expert at it than I am. But two, he really draws upon his anti-corruption compliance roots and really, I think, explains it in a way that the anti-corruption compliance practitioner will understand it and, more importantly, be able to incorporate it into an overall compliance program. So he's got a three-part series I've linked to, or I will link to in the show notes, blog three, where he laid out five practical steps for your compliance program. And this may sound like other things we've talked about today. Number one, risk assessment. Number two, different for sanctions compliance is geo-blocking. So you may need to look at the company, excuse me, the country where either you're doing business or your vendor is coming from. Next, screen due diligence, independent research, and escalate as appropriate. Number four, third-party risks in the sanctions world. You need to know, as with distributors, who is the end user of your product? Do you get an end user verification and do you have that documentation? And then training, both annual and micro-learning training. So great points for Mike. Think about those for your sanctions program and maybe incorporate the geo-blocking part into your anti-corruption program or at least use it as a red flag going forward. It may help you uh, down the road. Yeah. Yeah. I love, I mean, Michael Volkov is such a smart man. I love how he talked about in part one, giving straight examples because essentially says, you know, we don't think, we think about financial institutions. We think about defense companies, but we don't think about cement companies and we don't think about selling cigarettes. And yet when you look at two of the most recent enforcement actions, selling to ISIS, right? Your cement people, not a good idea. And also, you know, selling to North Korean military with cigarettes, not a good idea. So it doesn't just affect the kind of companies that we think are likely outcome uh, participants. And that's fascinating. Like everything I think we talked about today, I hope you had a great time. I always do. And uh, looking forward to our next one as well. I don't think we'll record before Memorial Day. So Memorial, happy Memorial Day for all our listeners. Take care. All right. This is Tom Fox again. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Two Gurus Talk Compliance. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this as much as Christy and I did recording it and bringing it to you. If you have a question or article you would like Christy or I to look at for an upcoming episode, please email us or you could link to us uh, or send us an IM through LinkedIn. Two Gurus Talk Compliance is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network.